Lots going on today. It's exciting. Lots of good stuff. Last week, um, Tab introduced you to um, a new sermon series that we're going to be doing for a while, and we're just kind of going to see how it works out and as far as how long it goes. She talked to you last week about the way of Jesus. We're going to be talking a lot about the character of Jesus, one element at a time. Each Sunday we'll discuss a different character trait. And last Sunday she talked about sacrificial living, how Jesus lived as a sacrifice. He was very sacrificial in everything that he did. And today I am going to talk about compassion. Jesus is very compassionate. He has compassion on all he's made. We actually just read that from Psalms um, this morning, is that the Lord is compassionate. And that's demonstrated in a lot of the gospel stories. You'll see it over and over again, the compassion of Jesus. I've just picked a couple today uh, to go over to demonstrate this, to talk about um, how that works out for us and to have our, uh, us examine ourselves and how we are walking in compassion. So the first one is Matthew 9. We'll start here. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The first thing about this, Jesus was in his time of ministry. He was going to all of these different places, and people were beginning to respond to his message. And whether they knew exactly why they were seeking him out or not, they had begun to follow him. So he was teaching this multitude of people and and looking out at this group of people. And it says that he felt compassion for them. And to start, I want to talk about the word compassion and what it means. In Greek, this word, compassion, It means to be moved in your inward parts. Jesus was moved in his inward parts as he looked at the multitude. You can see these two words here. This is the word for compassion. I'm not even going to try, so don't even ask me to try to say it. (laughs) Because I can't. And if you look, you can see the similarity here to here. This right here is the Greek root word for the Greek word compassion. The root word literally means inward parts, like your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your intestines, your guts, your inward parts. And figuratively, it's used to mean the affections or the emotions. And the Greeks of this time, the poets, the writers, the authors, thought of your inward parts as the seat of the passionate emotions, like love and anger and all of those really intense things. But the Hebrew people of this time thought of your innards as the seat of the more tender emotions, like benevolence and compassion and kindness and things like that. It's interesting to me to see how they thought of those differently. So I would describe this in today's words in English as a visceral feeling as compassion being something that's visceral. It's associated with your viscera. It comes from your gut. 
And when we talk about empathy, uh, we talk about it coming from the gut. That's where you empathize with people, where you feel the experience of another person. It's in your gut. Have you ever had an experience or seen something? Um, Maybe you've seen someone going through something, but you're having an experience and you get this intense feeling in your belly. And it's not something that you are processing with your intellect. It's just a feeling you have here. And it's almost like your gut draws you forward into this situation. It's not something that you think about logically, but you're being pulled into it. You're being motivated to do something by this visceral feeling. That's a long-form description of the compassion that Jesus felt as he looked at the multitudes. Two important things to note about that. Firstly, it wasn't just an intellectual realization that these people in this group had unmet needs. And secondly, very importantly, we're going to talk more about this later, it was motivational for Jesus. His compassion had a consequence. When he had compassion on people, it moved him forward to an action. It should do the same thing for us as well. So why did Jesus have compassion on this multitude when he looked out at them? Well, first of all, they were distressed and they were dejected. There are so many different ways that different translations translate this portion of scripture. I find it very interesting. Some say harassed and helpless. The people were weary and confused. I need to look more into figuring out why there's so many of these really interesting descriptive words to describe these people. But today, I think the really important part is why were they distressed and dejected, weary and confused? It was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were defenseless. There was no one to lead them, to guide them, to herd them and keep them together, to protect them from the wolves. They were without a leader, without anyone to protect them. And something important also to note here is that the sheep that Jesus is referencing here are the lost sheep of Israel. He further defines that shortly after this portion of scripture when he sends out the disciples to go to the lost sheep of Israel first. I just wanted to note that so that somebody wasn't like, well, actually he's talking about Israel here. I know that. But at the same time, obviously, Jesus has compassion for Gentile people because all of humanity are lost sheep without a shepherd. All of humanity is looking for someone to lead them to put their faith into. So Matthew draws a lot of parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just like many other New Testament writers. And when you look at this verbiage here that Matthew is using, the distressed, the dejected, sheep without a shepherd, this is a recall on Ezekiel chapter chapter 34. And it's a lot of the same words. So let's take a quick look at that. Here we go. So this is Ezekiel writing about the shepherds of Israel and how they have let the people down. He says, you have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered 
over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. This is the condition of the people that Jesus was looking on. They had been led astray by false leaders. They had been neglected, and they'd been scattered, and they had been largely distant from God. And as he looked on his people, the people he was descended from, their condition moved him deeply. It was deeply disturbing to him how isolated they were from their father. He was moved by it. If you think about it, they had been failed over and over again by so many of their leaders. Remember, some leaders like Moses and Joshua and David were excellent shepherds many times, but they had that human problem. They always fell short. Other leaders, like those specifically the Ezekiel is speaking of, were just absolutely terrible. The Jewish people suffered without a shepherd, scattered, many times ending up in slavery, subjugation, and exploitation. It was terrible. And even more so than their physical condition, I think what he saw was they lacked a shepherd to lead them back to the Father. They needed a shepherd to lead them to and reconcile them to their father. He saw their spiritual depravity and their condition. And that was so ugly to him and it grieved him. I think that there's nothing that draws the compassion of Jesus more than human beings separated from their creator, from their father. Lost, hopeless, and in captivity to darkness. These people were largely distant from God, and really, ultimately, what they needed was eternal salvation, and that can only be brought about by Jesus. Only he could supply that, that need. So Ezekiel 34 ends like this. This is what the Lord says. This is his response to the failure of the shepherds. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost. Bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. The Lord says, you have failed, and I will shepherd my own flock like I wanted to from the get-go, but they rejected me. And he does this. He, He does this. He does this through his servant, Jesus. Jesus comes, and he is the good shepherd. He comes to seek and to save that which is lost. That is dear to his heart. And it comes from a place of love and compassion that he wants to shepherd the lost. So Jesus' compassion has a consequence. Right after um, Matthew, the section that we just read in Matthew, he goes into... um, talking about a lot of your Bibles will actually subtitle this whole section, the Lord of the harvest. So right after he talks about this multitude um, being lost and harassed and dejected and all of those things, he follows um, with verses 37 to 38. And he says this, after he looks on the multitude, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. And immediately following this, he sends out the 12 disciples to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near because he recognizes the spiritual need in the multitude. And he is moved with compassion and he takes action. He sends out his disciples to declare the truth to those who are lost. It is very 
motivational for him. That's the action that follows his compassion. I think that takes us to a place of asking ourselves, what do we see when we look out at the multitude? Do we experience compassion when we look out at the world? Sometimes people are naturally inclined to be more tender-hearted and compassionate, and that's just the way they're naturally wired. But no matter what your inclinations are, we all submit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. He's conforming all of us into the likeness of Jesus. If you don't feel like a particularly compassionate person, seek it out. Ask the Lord to change your heart. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He's like, some people are more loving than others. The best way to be loving is to act like you love, and soon you will find yourself loving. Do that with compassion as well. It's a good exercise to get into. So uh, just last week, Joe and I were down, we spent some time down in Detroit. That is a multitude those are there's so many different kinds of people there. We were we spent a lot of time downtown and just looking out at all those people. I knew I was going to be talking about the compassion of Jesus and the multitude, and I had to like kind of test myself. Like, well, what do I feel when I look out at the multitude? It was really convicting to think about that. I'm not always confronted with a barrage of people going about their lives, but there I was. And it was a good time to ask myself, do I have the attitude of Jesus toward these people? Or do I just see them as being in my way? So, so many of those people, so many that we come across every day have no shepherd. They've been led astray by false shepherds. All the things that they seek to comfort them, to build their lives on in this world, people are looking and longing for something real. They're looking and longing for truth. And do we see them that way? Do we recognize that they're lost and weary and that they're looking for hope? How are we living our lives in response to the Great Commission? To preach the gospel to all nations. To tell people that the kingdom of heaven is near. How are we living in response to that? So after having that experience in Detroit and seeing all those people and feeling my own feelings, I came home and was doing some reading and prepping for the sermon, and I came across this quote that was very, very, really convicting. And I thought, wow, this just hits the nail on the head. This is so true. It's from McLaren's commentary. If you do any kind of Bible study, his commentary comes up a lot. And this is what he says about compassion. If you excite emotions which are intended to lead to action like compassion, but the action does not follow, the excitation of the emotion without its appropriate action makes the heart a great deal harder than it was before. Think about that. If you look at something or you see something in the multitude and it moves you to compassion, you have that that Holy Spirit moment where you are grieved, you recognize the condition of something, and then you're just like, ooh, stuff that down, that's uncomfortable, and I don't know what to do about it, and humanity and the world are so ugly, and everything is so lost, and I'm just going to put my head in the sand. Well, the more you do that, it hardens your heart. I mean, you can naturally feel that. You just get to a point where I can't handle that feeling anymore, and I'm not going to have it. It's like, wow, 
That was really convicting to me. He goes on to say, if a man does not respond and do something, some crust of callousness and coldness comes over his own heart. You cannot indulge in the luxury of emotion, which you do not use to drive your spindles without doing yourselves harm. It is never intended to be blown off as waste steam and allowed to vanish into the air. It's meant to be conserved and guided and to have something done with it. Therefore, beware of sentimental contemplation of the sad condition of the shepherdless sheep, which does not move you to do anything to help them. Wow, that is so confrontational. But I really think it's true. Because sometimes I think it's easy to become satisfied with that sentimental feeling. To just have the feeling of compassion and look at people and be like, well, I really recognize that what the truth is and that they don't have it. And that shouldn't satisfy us. We have to take that and let it guide us and motivate us into doing something. And I'm not trying to be legalistic and say... I want you to be compulsive, and every single time you see a person that you think, that's not what I'm trying to say. But we all have to do something. You know, the Great Commission is for all of us. We all have to get out there and do something. So that was really convicting to me as I, as I read that. It's like, how, how am I feeling when I look at people, and what am I doing in response to that? So Jesus definitely has compassion when it comes to our spiritual, eternal needs. That is very true. At the same time, he also has it for our difficulties on this side of eternity. Jesus doesn't just make um, a solution for our eternal needs and say, okay, well, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and you don't need anything else from me. Um, It would be enough if that's what he did, but that's not. He also cares for us while we're here, right? The Lord knows the number of every hair on our head, and we're worth more than many sparrows. So he sees us through our difficulties on this side of eternity. He doesn't just satisfy that eternal requirement. He meets us with compassion now from his risen and exalted position in heaven. So a few things that the word tells us about Jesus. It says in John that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He understands the weakness of flesh because he bore that weakness, because he became flesh on our behalf. And Hebrews says that he sympathizes with our weakness, and not only that, but he tells us that we can come boldly to him in our time of need when we are weak. We can come before him, and he will help us. And also, he's pictured at the right hand of God, making intercession for us from his exalted position, his risen living position. So the next story I want to look at in talking about how Jesus meets us in our earthly difficulties is uh, Mark chapter 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After bidding them farewell, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on land. He could see that the disciples were straining to row because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the sea. He intended to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they cried out, thinking he was a ghost. 
For they all saw him and were terrified. But Jesus spoke up at once. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And the disciples were utterly astounded. For they had not understood about the loaves. The feeding of the 5,000 had just happened. But their hearts had been hardened. All right, so Jesus is pictured in this story alone on a mountain praying. A lot of times in biblical narrative, locations have a meaning. They're really important. When you read about something someone is doing, take note of where they're doing it. It's not all the time, but a lot of time it's important. So in biblical narrative, high mountaintops portray a lot of times the heavenly realms. They're closer to the heavens. People seek them out to worship, and many interactions that people have with God are set on mountaintops throughout the entire biblical story. So here we see Jesus in a place often likened to the heavens, praying, interceding. And he is looking down, and he can see the disciples straining in this very earthly struggle while he's up on the mountain praying. This story is a picture of the intercession that Jesus makes for us from his risen and exalted position. So he's in this place of intercession, and he sees his disciples engaged in the earthly struggle. They're trying to cross this body of water. He told them to get in the boat and to go across, and they're trying to do just that. It's the middle of the night. They've been ministering. They were probably exhausted when they left, and now they've been at this for a long time, straining at these oars against the storm. So you don't see the word compassion specifically in this story. You don't see it mentioned. Um, I don't think it's totally out of the question, though, that it was a part of what motivated what Jesus ends up doing. Speaking of what he ends up doing, I think first we should talk about what he doesn't do and what he could have done instead. So what could he have done from the mountaintop as he sees them straining? He could have just fixed everything from where he was, right? I mean... I think it's safe to assume he has the power to do that. So he could have just calmed the storm from without going to them, without letting them see him at all. And they would have just gone across. I don't know what they would have thought. Hey, well, that worked out really well. I'm so glad that we're so lucky or whatever. But that's not what he does. Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever been in a storm figuratively speaking, where you're straining at the oars and you think, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was just stopping this storm and it just ended and I was able to just make safe passage and it was easy. That's really what you want. You want easy. And I think we can all relate to that. I'm sure that they would have loved that, Um, but that's not what he does. What he does has a completely different effect than that. And what he often does for us and how he meets us in our struggles has a different effect as well. So he goes to them. He goes down to them from the mountaintop. And because he can see them. I'm always touched when I think about how the Lord sees us. He sees us all the time. There's no distance that can separate us from him even from his place of intercession. And there is no storm, there is no difficulty that can obscure us from his vision. He sees us and he knows us. There's nothing that is ever going to change that. I find that so comforting because I also know that he still loves me and that he's faithful. So he goes down to them. We can't be separated. And it says that he intended to pass by them, which... 
I always thought was really interesting. What does that mean that he intended to pass by them? Um, it's This is an important little bit. Pass by is the same word that's used in the Septuagint in the Exodus story when God himself passes by Moses on Mount Sinai and declares his name. So the same thing is happening here. God passed by Moses and Jesus is going to pass by the disciples as they're in this boat. So remember that story with Moses. What did God say to Moses as he was passing him by? So God says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The Lord was revealing himself and his character to Moses in that moment. And that's the first thing he says. So as Jesus is going to pass by them and they think he's a ghost, this is what he says. He says, take courage. It is I. He tells them that it is I. When he says it is I, he's using the same word that he used when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he tells the Pharisees, I've seen Abraham. And the Pharisees say to him, how is that possible? You're not even 50 years old that you have seen Abraham. And Jesus responds, before Abraham was, I am He's using the same words. It is I. I am. I am God. He's revealing his deity to the disciples as they're in this difficult struggle on this boat. He's not passing them by because he doesn't care. He's showing them his deity. He's saying to them, teaching them that in his presence is perfect peace. And in his presence is everything they need in every storm. If they will just abide in him, he will abide in them. It's a deep, deep teaching, and they don't get it this time. They eventually do, but they don't get it this time. He's saying not so much, look what I can do for you. He's saying, look at who I am. And that is the lesson. That's the thing that we need so deep is we have to know who he is, his character. He's compassionate. He sees our difficulties and he comes to us in them. And he meets us and reminds us of who he is. And in that place, we have perfect peace. But we have to receive him, right? We have to receive that. He demonstrates this to them when he gets into the boat and the storm completely dies down. The storm goes away. So in thinking about this, How do we apply this to our lives? One way is, are we compassionate to one another? Are we compassionate toward our brothers and sisters? Um, Are you interceding for your brothers and sisters? When you see them in a struggle, or even when you're just praying and they come to mind, you don't have to wait to ask them, hey, how have you been? Just take that prompting and begin to pray and intercede for your brothers and sisters in that moment. Do we have compassion in the way that we meet them in their physical struggle when they're straining at the oars? Do we go and bring aid to them? Uh, let's see. We absolutely need each other. Um, no one can do this alone. Like we're a body. We're supposed to help each other in this way. So as I close on talking about compassion, and I think I'm going to do this at the end of every one of these character traits I talk about of Jesus, I want to close in talking about what compassion is not. And I feel like that's really important 
because it seems to me that sometimes the character of Jesus and what we are to be conformed to gets whittled down to really weak stuff. Like the essence of Christian behavior is just to be nice. That is not true. That is not true. Jesus was so kind. Of course, he was kind. He was meek. He was humble. Also, he was courageous. He was valiant. He was bold. He spoke the truth. He was strong. He was faithful. He was patient. He was all these things. If you had met Jesus, you wouldn't just be like, he's a nice guy. It's not about just like, well, just be nice. Our transformation by the Holy Spirit cannot be whittled down to just some southern manners. So every time I talk about this, I want to talk about what compassion is not, what patience is not, what humility is not, and what it actually is. So compassion is not enabling sinful, irresponsible, and destructive behavior in another person as a pattern. It's not a pattern of enabling someone to just destroy their own lives. That's not what compassion is. Jesus came full of grace, but he also came full of truth. He was a perfect example of both of those things. Sometimes compassion is being wise and discerning and speaking the truth in love to someone. Sometimes that is what we have to do. In Jesus, we have authority as believers with the spirit dwelling inside of us. We have authority over a lot of things. But the will of another person is not one of those things. At some point, all of us have to decide to let Jesus into our boat for our storms to cease. Everyone has to make that decision. We can even help each other strain at the oars. But if the person you're helping just wants you to do all the straining while they punch holes in the boat, that's a completely different story. We have to operate in wisdom. It won't be long if you just keep straining at those oars and let them punch holes at the boat before you're both at the bottom of the sea. And that's no good. That's not what we want. Wisdom isn't necessarily a character trait as such, but it is something that the word tells us is available in abundance if we'll seek it out. We have to use wisdom in our relationships and in how we live our lives. And the Lord is happy to give us his wisdom. He tells us that. You cannot stand in the place of Jesus for someone. You can't do that. If we don't use wisdom, we can end up just band-aiding over a situation over and over again. That if we would just step away and let God be God, he would come in and heal. You don't want to be somebody's Jesus. It'll kill you. It doesn't work. So of course, yes, we should compassionately help each other but always with an eye toward urging each other on to trust and faith in God. Ultimately, he is the one that we need. He is our answer. He's our everything. And we have to abide in him, and he will abide in us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you meet every need that we have. I thank you that you've met our eternal spiritual need, that you've reconciled us back to God, that you've saved us. I thank you that you're faithful to see us through our struggles, that you're faithful to give us wisdom as we live our lives, as we help other people. 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be full of your compassion, Lord, and that you would show us just how you want us to use that. Just how you want us to apply that energy as you motivate us and move us forward into caring more and more for people. I thank you that we get to be a part of your plan. I thank you that we get to be a part of declaring your kingdom and who you are, Lord. You are so good. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.